This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Bad Sports, where I share with you crimes that occurred at sporting events or were committed by sports figures. This time, I'll tell you a story about two accomplished athletes who competed in the sport of professional bodybuilding. Ray and Sally McNeil were a married couple who trained hard, loved fiercely, and fought violently throughout their eight-year marriage. But a combination of infidelity, abuse, and anabolic steroid use would lead to a final bloody confrontation on Valentine's Day 1995. This is the case of Sally Killer McNeil. Sally Loden met Ray McNeil when they were both serving in the United States Marine Corps and stationed at Camp Pendleton in California. Sally, originally from Allentown, Pennsylvania, was 27 and divorced from her first husband, Anthony Loden, with whom she'd had two children. Ray, born in Jamaica, was four years Sally's junior. They became inseparable soon after meeting, and in 1987, after a short courtship, they were married. Ray and Sally had a couple of things in common. First, they were both seriously into fitness and bodybuilding. While she was in the military, Sally would win the U.S. Armed Services Physique Championship twice. Ray would go on to a career as a professional bodybuilder, taking several titles, including Mr. California. The second thing that they had in common was that according to acquaintances, witnesses, and police reports, they were both controlling, jealous, possessive, and prone to violent tempers. Physically, they were both strong and powerfully built. Ray weighed 256 pounds and was a wall of muscles. Sally weighed 100 pounds less, but claimed to bench press 225 pounds. You might say that Ray and Sally McNeil had one of those relationships that burned so hot they sometimes became consumed in the flames. But friends and colleagues reported that it was a love affair. They were attracted to each other's dedication and hard work in their careers and they encouraged and supported each other as participants in the highly competitive sport. Ray McNeil was interviewed by Flex magazine in the early 1990s. He told writer Peter McGow how much he respected and loved his wife and sang her praises as a bodybuilder. Whenever one was competing, the other was by their side, cheering them on. But the combination of Sally's jealousy and quick temper, combined with Ray's wandering eye and philandering ways, made for an explosive relationship. In 1990, Sally discovered that Ray was having an affair and confronted the woman at a bodybuilding show. She attacked her rival, throwing her to the floor and pummeling her in the head. Sally had to be dragged away before she inflicted serious damage. Due to this incident of violence, Sally was banned from competing for a year by the National Physique Committee, or NPC, the largest amateur bodybuilding organization in the U.S. This wasn't the only violent incident Sally would be involved in that year. She was also accused of pulling a gun on her ex-husband, Anthony Loden, and breaking his car windows with a crowbar. And there had also been an incident involving Ray McNeil. She and Ray got into a violent argument, and when he ended it by walking out of their residence, Sally dropped a 70-pound weight onto his car from a balcony. In another report that same year, police visited Sally's residence to check on the well-being of her children. It's not mentioned who called or why. Perhaps it was their father who was worried after his run-in with his ex-wife. 
but this is pure speculation. When the police entered their home to investigate, Sally fought with the officers until they used pepper spray to subdue her. Sally, perhaps because of these incidents, was demoted from her rank as sergeant in the Marine Corps. When her term of service ended in 1991, she was not allowed to re-enlist. Now unable to compete and drummed out of the military, Sally found a way to make use of her physique and earn a good living as well. She started a side business in semi-erotic female submission wrestling. What's that? Good question. I had to look it up myself. Apparently, men would pay her top dollar for private wrestling sessions in her apartment living room. It was at this time that she began going by the name Sally Killer McNeil. Weird, maybe, but Sally was able to make a lucrative income from it, even becoming the major breadwinner in the family so Ray could pursue his professional bodybuilding career. Ray left the Marines and began competing full-time. In 1991, after competing in the North American Championships, he advanced from amateur to professional status. He earned the title of Mr. California and placed among the top 20 professional bodybuilders in the nation in his weight class. In 1993, Ray McNeil competed in 10 professional bodybuilding competitions and took second place at the Niagara Pro Competition, qualifying for the Mr. Olympia competition. In the 1970s, Arnold Schwarzenegger dominated the Olympia competition, placing first several times in the heavyweight division. This exposure launched his Hollywood career and eventually carried him all the way to the California governor's office. Ray wasn't interested in politics, but he did have other aspirations beyond competitive bodybuilding. In 1994, he enrolled in acting classes with the goal of performing in stand-up comedy. Always one to accomplish what he set out to do, Ray began performing in front of small audiences at the Comedy Club in La Jolla by the summer of that year. But while Ray was qualifying for Mr. Olympia, Sally was continuing to have problems controlling her temper, landing her in hot water yet again. While home for a visit in 1993, Sally was hanging out in a bar in Allentown when she decided to dance on a table. Witnesses reported that when a bouncer told her to stop, she went berserk and the cops had to be called. By the time the police arrived, Sally had attacked the bouncer, kicking him in the face. She began fighting the cops and threatened to kill them. It took three officers to subdue her and place her under arrest. By this time, Sally's NPC suspension had lifted, allowing her to compete again. In 1994, she entered the USA Championships, placing fifth in the middleweight division, then sixth in the heavyweight category of the North American competition, and finally 16th in the NPC Nationals. While Sally McNeil had a history of acting out violently with her husband, ex-husband, and police officers, Ray McNeil was not an innocent party in the marriage. It was common knowledge that he'd cheated on Sally several times over the course of their almost eight-year marriage. Sally often found out about these affairs, and the fights would begin. Ray would also strike Sally, and there are reports of him hitting, kicking, and punching his wife, leaving her with bruises and black eyes. It seems that the couple were attracted to each other like magnets, unable to resist being together, but repelling each other at the same time. The trajectory of this volatile relationship would all come to an abrupt end in 1995. It was Valentine's Day, February 14, 1995, and Sally and Ray were together in their Oceanside, California apartment. 
Dowley's two children, Shantina, age 11, and John, age 9, were also home. Around dinner time, Ray told Sally he was going to make a trip to the Price Club to buy a chicken to make for dinner. Ray didn't return until 10.30, and Sally, aware that the store closed at 8.30, became suspicious. When he finally returned, she accused him of going to see one of his girlfriends. He told her that he just decided to go to another store to get the chicken. As Ray prepared to cook, Sally followed him into the kitchen and began to berate him for going to the more expensive store, complaining that he was spending money frivolously. Money was tight, and Sally was the one who always had to figure out how the bills would be paid each month. When the couple began arguing, the children, used to this familiar scenario, went into the bedroom to hide. More yelling and insults continued, with Sally insulting her husband by saying that he, quote, looked like shit and wasn't even close to being ready for his next competition. Ray was scheduled to compete in the South Beach Pro Invitational in Miami in just four days. Later, Shantina would say that she had heard a gurgling sound coming from the kitchen and thought it was her mother being choked. Sally then went into their bedroom and took a 12-gauge shotgun out of the closet, removed it from its case, and grabbed two shells. She loaded the gun and returned to the kitchen. Pointing the gun at Ray, she shot him in the stomach. The bullet hit three ribs and blew out his liver, leaving a six-inch hole in his diaphragm and blasting through his pancreas, kidney, and abdominal aorta. Sally then reloaded the shotgun and aimed the gun higher before shooting the second round level with his head, causing massive damage to his face and jaw. The children ran screaming from the house. Shantina yelled for a neighbor, saying, Oh my God, my mom shot my dad. A neighbor arrived and saw Ray doubled over on the floor and bleeding profusely. Sally had draped a blanket over him and was on the phone with 911. She handed the shotgun to the neighbor who removed it from the home. The 911 operator would hear Ray moaning, Oh God, why? in the background. Sally's response was, I told you I wasn't going to take your shit anymore. Amazingly, Ray McNeil was still alive and conscious when the police arrived. They could see what was left of his liver protruding from the large wound in his abdomen. A quarter of his face had been blown off, but he was still able to form words. He could hear Sally standing nearby with an officer, telling him that Ray had choked her. Ray was able to toss his head from side to side and speak one word firmly, No. Sally was arrested, and Ray was rushed to the hospital where he died two hours later. The first shot to his abdomen had been the fatal wound. After Sally's arrest, the media picked up the story and speculation began about the use of anabolic steroids in competitive bodybuilding. Anabolic steroids are synthetic variations of the male sex hormone testosterone. They are used by doctors to treat male hormone imbalances, but also by athletes to build muscle and enhance athletic performance. Anabolic steroids have been used by bodybuilders since the 1960s to achieve the impossibly large muscles that audiences now expect from the top competitors. The term roid rage began to appear in the media when athletes who reportedly used anabolic steroids exhibited violent or antisocial behaviors. According to Dr. Gary Wadler, Interviewed by WebMD in 2007, the term roid rage commonly refers to the loss of impulse control and overreaction to a stimulus. So, for example, a person who is cut off in traffic might become frustrated or even angry, but they do not normally react to the level of trying to crash into the other car or pull out a gun to threaten the other driver. 
that would be the rage part of the reaction to an everyday stimulus which normally wouldn't provoke such an extreme response. Dr. Wadler, a member of the World Anti-Doping Agency and author of the textbook Drugs and the Athlete, explains that the rage is precipitated by the brain being exposed to anabolic steroids. But he does point out that not everyone who uses anabolic steroids reacts to this extreme. Some may be more assertive than they normally be, while others go from assertive to aggressive. The most extreme, but much less common level, is someone exhibiting uncontrollable anger or rage. It's also possible, the doctor explains, that a person may already possess an underlying psychiatric disorder that contributes to diminished impulse control. He theorizes that the use of steroids may unmask this type of disorder. In Sally McNeil's case, the headlines proclaimed that the female bodybuilder was driven to murder while in the throes of roid rage. It made for a juicy news story, but Sally had a different version of events. Sally's attorney would employ a battered women's defense at her trial. Sally reported to the first officers on the scene that soon after Ray returned home on the night of February 14th, they began to argue. During this argument, he slapped and choked her. This was backed up by her daughter's statement about hearing the gurgling sound coming from the other room, and which she suspected had been her mother being choked. Sally said she was in fear for her life when she retrieved the shotgun, and when Ray came at her again, she fired the first round. Although he was seriously wounded, Sally said he kept lunging towards her, so she reloaded and shot him a second time. But there were problems with this version of events. The responding officers testified that Ray was still conscious when they arrived. He was found about five feet inside the door of the apartment on his hands and knees, moaning, Why did you do this? Oh, God! The officers also testified that he'd shaken his head and said no when Sally said he'd choked her. Ray McNeil's dying statement had been to refute his wife's version of events. The officers also testified that they hadn't seen any blood or any injuries on Sally. Later that night, Sally was examined and fingernail marks were found on her neck, but the prosecutor believed these scratches were self-inflicted. Later, they even exhumed Ray's body to check his fingernails for evidence, but did not find any DNA that matched Sally. Furthermore, the medical examiner concluded that Ray's fingernails had been too short to cause the type of injuries found on Sally's neck. The prosecutor also pointed out that Ray would have been incapacitated after the first shot and could not have continued to come after Sally. So the fact that she reloaded and shot him a second time proved to them that she was not in fear of her life, but merely angry. As for her story that Ray was still a threat and was advancing on her at the time she shot him in the face, a crime scene reconstructionist determined that the second shot had come from about six feet away. She testified that the blood evidence suggested that his head was close to and in line with the sofa cushions when he was shot again. This would indicate that he was not upright when the second bullet was fired. The prosecutor made a case for premeditation by explaining that Sally had gone back into the bedroom to reload the weapon before returning to the living room to shoot Ray the second time. Their evidence for this was that the first shell casing was found in the bedroom, not in the living room. Sally's version of events had her loading the shotgun in the bedroom and then reloading in the living room very quickly after firing the first round. How then, the prosecutor asked, did the shell casing get into the bedroom? Sally's explanation was that with all the police officers running through the front room, someone must have inadvertently kicked it into the bedroom. But the jury was shown photographs from the crime scene, and the apartment was described as untidy and cluttered, 
so it wasn't believed that a bullet could have traveled a straight path from the living room to the bedroom, even if it had been carelessly kicked aside. Sally took the stand in her own defense and described eight years of abuse by Ray McNeil. Her husband began to beat her just three days into their new marriage, she said. He was jealous and controlling and often accused her of being unfaithful when he was the one who had carried on multiple affairs. She said that over the course of their marriage, Ray had broken her nose, torn her shoulder rotator cuff, thrown her across a room breaking her coccyx bone, and many other injuries. She saw doctors but didn't tell them what had really happened, she explained, because if Ray got arrested, he wouldn't be able to compete. She was also afraid of losing him, she said, and realized now that she had suffered from a classic case of battered women's syndrome. Ray had abused her physically, sexually, and psychologically until she had no self-esteem left. Sally told the jury that she'd believed what her husband had told her repeatedly, that she was ugly, worthless, and no one else would want her. The defense called an expert witness who testified that Sally McNeil was suffering from the effects of battered women's syndrome and had acted in self-defense, fearing that her life was in imminent danger. Sally's defense attorney told the jury that, quote, the issue in this case is Sally McNeil's right to use force in an honest and reasonable manner against her abuser in order to stop the beatings, the rapes, the sodomies, the tortures, unquote. But the prosecution brought in the many incidents of violence exhibited by Sally before she'd shot and killed her husband, against him, her ex-husband, and even police officers. They didn't present steroid use as a motivating factor, although both Ray and Sally had tested positive for the drug. Ray tested positive for five different types of steroids, and Sally for one. It was the prosecutor's theory that Sally knew Ray was getting ready to leave her and that she wanted to kill him for his life insurance. Now, this is just my opinion but I don't think they needed to bring in the life insurance angle. I mean, that seems kind of far-fetched. The fact that they got Sally to admit on the stand that Ray was planning to leave her should have been explanation enough. She had a history of becoming violent due to jealousy, so that probably would have been sufficient motivation for the jury. But I guess they were just trying to hedge their bets. The prosecutor ended his closing arguments by saying that, quote, the defendant is anything but a battered wife. She is one of the most violent persons I have ever prosecuted, unquote. The court instructed the jury that they could find for first-degree murder, second-degree murder, voluntary manslaughter, or self-defense. The jury found Sally McNeil guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced her to 15 years to life in prison, plus a consecutive four-year term for the firearm enhancement. Upon sentencing her, Judge Laura Haynes had this to say, You'll be an old woman when you get out. Ray didn't deserve to die like that. Sally was sent to the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. She attempted to appeal her sentence numerous times on various grounds, but mainly due to improper jury instructions. Her conviction was initially overturned by the U.S. Ninth District Court of Appeals, but the state of California then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which reversed the ruling and remanded the case back to the Ninth Circuit. Reviewing the Supreme Court's opinion and instructions, the court then reinstated her original conviction in 2005. Sally McNeil gave one ill-advised jailhouse interview to Tegan Clive from Flex Magazine while awaiting trial. She came across as cold and without remorse and turned public opinion against her even more. 
In one example, when asked during the interview about Ray's firm no, refuting that he had choked her as his dying declaration, Sally answered, how could Ray talk without a mouth? Even so, in 2009, she decided to grant another interview to another bodybuilding publication, RX Muscle. In the two-part interview conducted by Lee Penman, Sally gives details about her years of abuse by Ray McNeil. She claims Ray was insecure and jealous and afraid of losing her to someone who would treat her better, so he began abusing her both physically and psychologically soon after they married. She said she tried to leave him three times, but he'd tracked her down each time and forced her to return. Sally also claimed that anabolic steroid use contributed to his violent behavior. She said she had been so new to the sport when they'd first met that she didn't even know what steroids were, and it wasn't until later that she learned the drugs led to roid rage. Ray had once apologized to her, pointing to his steroid use as the reason for the abuse. Sally reminded the interviewer that Ray had tested positive for five different drugs at the time of his death. She said she had only tested positive for Decadurabolin, which is the brand name for Nandrolone, an androgen and anabolic steroid. But she claimed the only reason the drug was found in her system was because she had competed in the Nationals five months earlier. She claimed that Deca stays in the system for up to 18 months. She had never used a lot of steroids, Sally said. As for her portrayal in the media as a violent bully and the aggressor in the marriage, she said this was a false perception of her. She would get angry at her husband sometimes, she said, but only because, quote, if a guy is beating up on you because he mistrusts you, wouldn't you be angry when you discover he's fooling around on you? Unquote. Sally claimed she wasn't jealous and also laughed off the idea that she would provoke a 260-pound man into a fight. She had learned early on not to fight back, she said, because it just made the beatings worse. But the most scandalous claim she made during the interview was that Ray was carrying on homosexual affairs and that his boyfriends had lied for him on the stand, making her out to be the bully and claiming falsely that they had never seen injuries on her. She also changed the story about the events leading up to the murder. She said that she was getting ready to go out to a nightclub, and Ray became angry when he saw her putting on makeup and getting dressed for a night out. The DA changed the story, she said, and put the blame on her for starting the fight by accusing Ray of cheating on her again. But in the entire interview, Sally never once expresses remorse for killing her husband. She doesn't shed one tear for the man she once loved so fiercely that she would fight anyone who tried to get in between them. This lack of remorse may be the reason that up until today, the parole board has rejected all of Sally McNeil's petitions for release. Her last parole board hearing took place just two months ago, in February 2019. Her next shot at parole isn't scheduled until 2022, when she will be 61 years old. I do believe that Sally McNeil suffered abuse at the hands of Ray McNeil. I also believe that she too engaged in violence in her marriage. Her past history shows a pattern of acting out violently, sometimes triggered by serious issues like infidelity, but also for minor incidents like being told not to dance on a table. She obviously had a short fuse, and her go-to method was to open a can of whoop-ass on whoever provoked her. As to her being afraid of and controlled by her husband, that I have a little bit more trouble believing. Was Ray McNeil a large, powerful man who could have hurt her? Yes. But in the past, 
she had no trouble fighting back against police officers when she was angry. If men with badges who carried guns didn't intimidate her, who could? Of course, you can make the argument that she was psychologically controlled by her husband. That is possible, but I think unlikely. Was it roid rage? Perhaps. Sally's first husband, Anthony Loden, would tell a reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune that she became, quote, unhinged after she began bodybuilding, becoming violent towards him and destroying his property. Did steroid use cause her to be more aggressive? Or was there some underlying issue, like antisocial personality disorder, that was already present? If so, then the drugs may have further diminished her impulse control. But there is one other possibility. Maybe as she got stronger, Sally started feeling more empowered, allowing her anger to come to the surface and giving herself permission to act on these feelings. Or, finally, maybe she was just an angry person prone to violence, who just happened to be a competitive bodybuilder. We don't necessarily have to link her brutal and violent act to steroid abuse, or her participation in the sport, or anything other than the fact that she became angry one day, picked up a gun, and committed murder. Just a simple, sad fact. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Don't forget, you can join the Facebook fan page to interact with other listeners, discuss the episodes, and just see what other true crime heads are talking about. Just look for the Once Upon a Crime podcast fan page and click join. Check out our website for information about upcoming events, podcast merchandise, and to listen and subscribe to Once Upon a Crime or my new podcast, Let's Talk About True Crime and the next chapter. You can always send me an email to say hi or suggest cases. The email address is esther at truecrimepodcast.com. That's E-S-T-H-E-R at truecrimepodcast.com. Once again, I just want to say thank you for coming back each week to listen to my true crime stories. I'm so grateful that I can share them with you. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. My administrative assistant is Lorena Garcia, and my copy editor is Crystal Dernan. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.